Now our lesson today comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this, he received approval as righteous, God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he did not experience death, and he was not found because God had taken him. For it was attested before he was taken away that he had pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, warned, about, warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning and built an ark to save his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir to, right, to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the very same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith he received power of procreation, even though he was too old, as was Sarah herself, was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Gene, for reading our lesson this morning. Uh, thanks also, Jonathan, for leading us in prayer and presiding for us today. We look forward to the music of our chancel choir as well. Uh, we have many things to be thankful for today. Uh, we've mentioned VBS. Uh, let me just mention the return of our jubilation choir. Uh, they took 45 to Cincinnati and 100%, they've returned with 45. We're grateful for that. Uh, many of you were here last Sunday night out on the front lawn for their presentation of Godspell Junior. And it was, it was memorable. It was a wonderful time. We're grateful they have returned 
uh, as well. Also at 8.30 this morning, I'm aware that often we share our prayer concerns, but not necessarily updates and celebrations. And I have a celebration that I want to share with you. Uh, Ellie Kate Turner, the eighth grader, the 13-year-old who uh, was injured in the accident on Granny White about a month ago, was at church this morning at 8.30. And... um, We had her stand and uh, it was a marvelous, marvelous witness just to have her here. Uh, her dad, John and Katie, that's mother and dad, told me that, uh, he called me yesterday and he said, well, I told the family that we were going to leave early Sunday morning and go to Florida. And, and uh, Ellie Kate said, no, dad, we're going to church first. And he said, yes, ma'am. And they were here and we celebrate with them and so grateful to God for just this miraculous blessing uh, in their lives. We also had the, uh, the youth choir from Fort Worth First Methodist. This is Casey's old church. They were here at 830 singing with our youth and that was a real treat as well. Uh, we welcomed them and said, you can't have Casey back. She's staying here. And we're grateful uh, for your presence today on this uh, second Sunday in June. And those of you who are online with us, what a joy it is to welcome you. It means a lot that you've chosen to be with us here today. And we feel your presence. We welcome you as well. So we're in the fifth week. We're on the back nine of our series on Hebrews that we're choosing to call Anchored. Two more weeks after today. Uh, Next week, we'll look at chapter 12, following week chapter 13. Our theme verse for the whole series, as you know, has been chapter 6, verse 19. And I want us to read this theme verse again, just to remind us of the importance of the theme of our time together. Let's read these words together. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It is safe and sure and goes through the curtain of the heavenly temple into the inner sanctuary. On our behalf, Jesus has gone there before us and become our high priest forever. Thanks to that single verse in the scripture, the anchor became the symbol of hope and stability for the early church, especially as they were encountering the storms of life, especially as they were encountering persecution, ridicule, and harassment, not in spite of their confession, but because of it. The purpose of an anchor, as you know, is is to hold the vessel steady, stable, and to keep us from drifting and being swept away by some adverse current. And there are many adverse currents in our day. The gospel is our anchor. I wanna give you a brief review. If you weren't here the last week or two, The first nine and a half chapters in Hebrews are heavy, heavy theology, wherein the writer, the author explains the nature and work of Christ in regard to our salvation. It's very important information, very important message. But in chapter 10, verse 19, there's a shift that happens where we go from theology to practice, where we go from ideology to action, creed to conduct. And the author makes this shift with one word, the word therefore, as you remember. Everything preceding the word therefore is preamble, right? It's the whereas section. And let me just save you some time. I'm going to summarize the first nine chapters of Hebrews 
according to the Revised Chapel Version. Whereas Jesus is the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's being, whereas Jesus is superior to the angels, to Moses, to the law, to all the high priests in Judea, whereas Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins on the cross and has ascended into heaven, interceding for us even now at the right hand of God, whereas Jesus has given us full access to the throne room, to the Father, making possible a new covenant with better promises written not on stone or paper, but on our hearts. Therefore, and here comes the resolution. Here comes the three admonitions, as we called them last week. Let us approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That's about worship. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. That's about doctrine. And finally, let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. And that's about discipleship and mission. And so last Sunday, I love the word provoke. We talked about that last week. I sent you forth at the benediction to provoke your neighbor, but not in the sense that we usually think, not to irritate, though some of you are certainly capable, not to annoy, though I'm certainly capable, but to incite, to encourage, to challenge by your example, your neighbor. In chapter 11, we are given examples, human examples, human anchors of provocative faith, those in the past who persevered, who didn't quit, who stayed anchored, who endured. In fact, this text is usually read uh, on All Saints Sunday. The first Sunday in November, we usually refer to this as the roll call of the saints. And it contains, if you read the whole chapter, there's 16, no less than 16 names of mentors, guides, who give us a roadmap by their lives, who give us an example to follow. I remember something Albert Schweitzer once said. He said, I love this, a good example has twice the value of good advice. That's so true. A good example, twice the value of good advice. In our last service, Suzanne Martin was present with us. She recently joined our church just about six months ago. Suzanne and I were classmates in college, and her father, Dr. Bill Starnes, was president of the school, which meant that Zan could do nothing that her father didn't see, and he was a mentor to me. Dr. Starnes had been a missionary in the Congo for years before he came back to the States, became president of Martin College. He was partnering in mission there with another mentor who was my youth director named Dr. Tom Cloyd. And Starnes was an anchor to me. He died 12 years ago last Monday. In fact, Bishop Bob Spain did the service for Dr. Starnes. And after worship last week, Suzanne and her brother Robert came up to the office and gave me an unexpected and an unbelievable gift. They gave me their father's robe. I'm wearing it this morning. This is, this is Dr. Starn's robe. And I'm wearing it this morning as a reminder of this text. 
that I'm standing here on somebody else's shoulders, and so are you. You're wearing the clothing of faith that somebody loved you enough to share with you. There's not a single one of us who came to Christ on our own, but we came because someone else loved us enough to share with us the gospel, and we're standing on their shoulders. That's chapter 11, the roll call of the saints. Now, it's interesting that chapter 11 begins with a definition of faith. And as far as I can tell in my Bible study, this is the, this is the only time that faith is defined. It's often applied and interpreted, but here it's defined. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, unseen. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to live by the old adage, seeing is believing. So that when someone says something to me that sounds impossible, I have to say, I have to see it to believe it. If you're like me, you're figuratively speaking, a native of Missouri, the show me state. We have to see it. I think about the apostle Thomas. I think Thomas, also called Didymus, was from Missouri as well because after he heard the testimony of his friends on Easter Sunday evening that Jesus had in fact risen from the grave, you remember what he said? He declared that unless I see him with my own eyes, until I touch him with my own hands, the wounds, I will in no sense believe. And of course, the next week Jesus appeared again. And you remember Jesus's words to Thomas. He said, brother, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We, we walk not by sight. We walk by faith. Believing is seeing. And so the 16 names that you see in this text believed without seeing. None of them saw God, but they believed. And here's the thing that gets me. They also followed without knowing where they were going. Well, that's me every morning on the way to church. We don't live by sight, but by faith. Now, we don't have time. You'll be glad to know. We don't have time to review all 16 characters. But I do want to mention a couple of observations that are embedded in these names from the text that just might help us in our faith walk. I think that verse six, chapter 11, verse six, is really the key to the whole chapter. In fact, let's read this text together. Without faith, it is impossible to please God for whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I wanna say a couple of things about that verse. First of all, I believe that faith, faith begins, it starts with simply an awareness of the presence of God. Now, little children get this instinctively, they understand this, that is until we teach them differently. <laughs> The text says that creation, nature itself, is evidence of God's existence. And now while we often debate, as we should, how creation came to be, 
the how involves science. And science, by the way, is no enemy of faith, at least in my book. It was Albert Einstein who said, science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. Faith and reason go together. But here's the thing, while science seeks to answer the how question, science cannot possibly answer the why question. And for most of us, the how question is really important, but the why, that's essential. People die without a why. People suffer without a sense of purpose. So, so I say, even if it was a big bang, we know who lit the fuse and we know why. It's the why. Some of you read the book by Simon Sinek, Start With the Why, businessman, consultant. He says that nobody buys what you do, they buy why you do. It's the purpose. He goes on to say, all organizations, including the church, start with why, but the great organizations keep their why clear year after year, making disciples for the transformation of the world, making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's our why. He goes on to say that there are two ways to influence people, inspiration and manipulation. And is it me or do we see manipulation more influential today than inspiration? I've forgotten where I was. Let me go back. Faith begins with awareness. But here's the thing. It's not enough to simply believe that God exists. Anybody can do that. This awareness leads to conviction and conviction comes from personal experience and trust. I wanna give you an example. If I were to say to you this morning that I believe Jonathan exists, you would say, you need to go back to seminary. Anybody, any fool can see that. But if I were to say to you, I believe in Jonathan Anderson, and by the way, I do, that is a different statement. That's not about existence. That's not just about awareness. That's about a relationship of trust. And so it is with faith. You cannot please God without trust. It's not possible. And so faith begins with existence, awareness. Awareness leads to conviction born of trust, which then becomes assurance which leads to action. Now you say, assurance, what is that? Blessed assurance, assurance of what? Assurance, says verse six, that God actually rewards those who seek him. That's my part, seeking. That's your part, seeking. You don't have all the answers, you're, you're simply seeking God's presence. And the idea is that God actually does bless those of us, he does, who walk by faith. But let me give you just a word of caution at this point. 
Because I think this is where pastors and, and parishioners get the line tangled up in the trees. We don't simply serve God for the blessings or for the perks. We serve God because our faith is pleasing to God, period, mic drop. Because faith, is pleasing. faith honors God, faith glorifies God. It is so important not to turn this kind of reward thing into prosperity gospel. As though if I'm faithful, God is gonna bless me with wealth and riches and fame. I've discovered that sometimes wealth can be more of a burden than a blessing. Although some of you are thinking, I'm willing to risk it. But it's not that God doesn't want us to have things. It's that God doesn't want things to have us. Because when that happens, then faith becomes more of an equation than it is a relationship where I believe that if I put the right tokens into the machine that I get what I deserve. That's an equation, that's not a relationship. One of the most haunting texts in the Bible to me was one day when Jesus encountered a, a rich young man called a, a ruler, he was a leader, and he said something very harsh, I think, to him. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he, he didn't say it's impossible, but you'll have to admit it's pretty hard on the camel. It changes us, changes our nature. Faith in God is its own reward. Whether that leads to a crown or a cross, whether that leads to success or to sacrifice, Faith is its own reward. And by the way, sometimes the return on our faith is sacrifice. And if you didn't know, this is what the original audience to whom this letter was written was experiencing. Faith became costly for these Jewish Christians. It's costly sometimes to follow Jesus. They were suffering because of it, not in spite of it. And so it was for the disciples. All but two of the original 12 were martyred because of their faith. It's costly, but the blessings always outweigh the burden. There's no comparison. The blessings of God always outweigh the burden. It's interesting to me that if you skip ahead to verses 33 through 35 in chapter 11, that the author actually itemizes, inventories, some of the blessings of those who have been faithful. Here it is. Some by faith conquered kingdoms. Some by faith administered justice, shut the mouths of lions, that's Daniel, quenched raging fire, that's Shedrach and Meshach and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword. Some by faith won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women even received their dead by resurrection. And when I read that section, I think, I'm in. So far, so good. Sounds right to me. Some see immediate and remarkable blessings to the promises, but some don't. Some didn't. 
If you read the next few verses, verses 36 through uh, 38, watch this. Some of the faithful suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. Oh, no. Stoned to death, sawn in two, that was Isaiah, killed by the sword, went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, tormented, wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground, not in spite of their faith, but because of it. And I think, oh, I'm not so fast. I'm not sure I'm in for that. And besides, what kind of reward is that? I mean, how are we going to feature that at annual conference in an ad campaign for following Jesus? And yet, every one of them were commended because of their faith. Those who were joyful, those who saw blessings, those who didn't, though many did not live to see and receive the promises, they made it possible for you to see it. They made it possible for me to see it. We're on their shoulders. I'm wearing their clothes. And by the way, the eternal promise they did receive is way better than the earthly one to begin with. Listen to the scripture again. God has prepared a city for them, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is why even at the funeral, even at the service of death and resurrection, even in the midst of grief, there is this deep sense of peace because though death is always tragic, it's not final, it's not the end. There's a new beginning. I was reading uh, an interview this week with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who said recently, life after death is a fantasy. Now, granted, Arnold Schwarzenegger knows a lot about fantasy. He is, after all, the original Terminator. I don't think I ever saw the movie. He knows fiction, but I'm not so sure he knows Jesus. Paul said, if for this life only we have hoped We're to be pitied. And by the way, Arnold, I don't know if you know this, but Arnold was not the only man to say, I'll be back. Jesus said it too. I'll be back. I'm coming back. And when I come back, I will have prepared a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And Jesus has yet to disappoint. Faith is risky business. It's not a get out of jail free card. It's not an insurance policy. In fact, most of you know that risk taking, that's one of our core values as a church. To roll the dice on God, to take a risk on someone. And don't you know that anything worth doing is going to be risky? My playing it safe doesn't honor God. It just protects me. And I think, though I could be wrong, that the tragedy of a disciple is to live in such a way as to disappoint God. When I was a kid, 
I have to tell you, the worst form of punishment that I ever endured was not corporal punishment. It was the feeling that I had disappointed the people who loved me the most. That's worse than a beating. (laughs) That was worse than a switch. You remember the day your mother would say, go find a switch and come back. This is worse than that. And it reminds me of something Jesus said in Luke 9, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man may also be ashamed when he comes in glory. Last word. I had the privilege of doing a funeral last week for, for one of our men who, who died rather tragically, his name Marshall Martin. Marshall was a native of Rossville, Georgia. He was born a bulldog and he died a bulldog. Uh, we were invited because he had 400 hats uh, in his home to bring our favorite hat. And so I brought my Georgia hat and put it here, red hat and put it on. It wasn't Sunday, so I wasn't struck by lightning. It was Monday, so it was acceptable. And here we were, he, Marshall and Aaron had moved here from Chattanooga and joined the fellowship. Aaron had grown up in this church, sang in the youth choir. And so when they returned to Nashville, they rejoined the church. They were charter members, by the way, of our modern service. And he was an iron man. You know what those are? The Ironman triathlon is that long distance three races that includes in the same sequence, a 2.4 mile swim, two and a half mile swim, a 112 mile bicycle ride, followed by a 26.2 marathon run. Now, if you're doing the math on it, let me save you some time. That's 140.6 miles of sheer pain. Uh, I explained, we had, we're full of iron men, and I explained to them, y'all have to excuse me, I'm more of a Reynolds rap guy. But we had all these iron people here. And Marshall had completed eight of those iron men competitions. He'd done 50 less, and then he had done 500 uh, different smaller triathlons in his life. He was an iron man. He was in the top 7% in the world. And in riding that bicycle through Chattanooga, the crash occurred, and a few days later, we're celebrating his life. He was an encourager. He was the kind of guy who always not only wanted to do his best, he wanted to help others do their best. I called him Barnabas. That name means son of encouragement. That was his gift. One of his colleagues from the workplace that he had coached spoke at the service, and he shared some of Marshall's maxims. I'd call them admonitions. I gave you three from Hebrews. I'm going to give you three in closing from Marshall Martin, three admonitions. These are Marshall's maxims. Don't practice something until you get it right. Practice it until you can't get it wrong. That's 1 Marshall chapter 2. Stop chasing what's in front of you, what's in it for you. When you give to others without expecting anything in return, you'll be given everything you've ever needed. And the last, this is my favorite, embrace the example. No matter how good you are, you can fall 
but you can always be better for that one person who will one day tug on your shirt tails and say, I want to be like you. Marshall's mantras remind me of the book of Hebrews, that when you are anchored in Christ, you're an iron man. You're an iron woman, and your example of one who understands that faith is its own reward, you will discover that there is nothing better on this earth than pleasing God. And it doesn't matter who approves or disapproves. This is the why of your existence, of my life and my faith. And when you get that, you'll have the assurance that enables you to persevere in life, in death, in life beyond death to the glory of God. May it be so.